Turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. We are, uh, we've been going through the uh, Gospel of Matthew the last several weeks and have been camping in the Sermon on the Mount uh, for a bit here, taking each of these Beatitudes one at a time. And we come today to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. Matthew 5 and verse 5. It's found on page 958 in your pew Bible. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It was the philosopher, Frederick Nietzsche, who said, When you look at the ethic of Jesus bound up in the Beatitudes, you're looking at the most seductive lie in the history of mankind. The very idea that the meek will inherit the earth is ludicrous. It's the arrogant who take over the earth. As believers, we hear Nietzsche's criticism. And although we're all for Jesus, I think many of us would say we're not real comfortable defending Jesus on the point that the meek uh, will inherit the earth. Uh, We're convinced that the meek inherit heaven, uh, that they're going to get that pie in the sky by and by. But from what we know about the earth, it sure does look like it's the arrogant. It's the aggressive. It's the multinational corporation. It's the mafia. It's the porno kings that inherit the earth. We're schooled again and again that if you want to get ahead in life, you've got to be aggressive. You've got to take charge. You've got to assert yourself. Maybe we're not too impressed with Leo the Lip DeRocher, the Yankee shortstop who said of Mel Ott, Good guys always finish last. But I think for the most part, we might tend to agree. Now, I've got a couple of uh, plaques in my office with key verses on them. Uh, one of them is my life verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. Uh, another one is for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But I suspect that there aren't too many of us, if any of us at all, uh, who in the place where we work at least have this plaque on our desk, the meek will inherit the earth. Because we might be misunderstood if we did. But we look at this and we still say it's the master teacher who gave us this statement. Uh, The master teacher and what is considered his master teaching. So there must be some truth here that we are to get. And so what is it? Uh, To get at that, I want to ask uh, three questions this morning. First of all, what does it mean to say the meek will inherit the earth? Who who are the meek? And then secondly, what is it that the meek are supposed to do? What are we supposed to do if we're meek? And then finally, what is it exactly uh, that the meek inherit as we look at Scripture? Now, first, as we consider the first question, who are the meek? Now, in English, we hear the word meek. If you were to look this up in an English dictionary, you probably would find words like uh, meek are those who are deficient in courage uh, or they are weak. Uh, Kind of a Casper milk toast would strain himself if he picked up a grape. You know, that's the uh, the meek. But if you look at the uh, Greek dictionary, you'll find out that's not at all what this word uh, meek means. Aristotle called this characteristic the golden mean uh, for the Greeks. Uh, Meekness describes the point between extreme anger and extreme control. 
A man who was meek in the Greek sense of the word was not a man who never got angry, but he was a person who got angry at the right time about the right things. Uh, there was a, a soldier in the Peloponnesian War who wrote back to his fiancée that she had, he had just purchased her a gift. It was a white stallion. And in writing about that stallion, he described the stallion as strong, as vigorous, and as meek. Now, he didn't mean by that, I bought you this old nag, this plow horse that isn't really much of a horse. It's uh, about ready for the glue factory. What he meant by calling the horse meek was this is a strong animal that controls its strength. It's submissive to its master. Now, that's the essential meaning of the word meek. I um, got a little lip from my daughter this last week, at least lip from my perspective. She said, Dad, I'm just being a white stallion. That's that's uh, that's all that is. Uh, that is what meekness is in terms of the meaning of the word. There are a couple of individuals in Scripture that are called meek that can help us appreciate what this word means. One is the meek man Moses in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3. Moses is identified as the meekest man on the face of the earth. And you say, what does that tell us about what meekness means in the Old Testament? Moses was the one who was going to lead a revolt, remember, as a young man. He even killed a, I was a magician, an Egyptian, you know, one of those Egyptian guys. He uh, killed an Egyptian uh, because he was going to set the people free. Uh, obviously, at that moment, he wasn't controlling his anger. But the word meekness is somebody who's strong, but normally would control other strength. Uh, he led two and a half million rebellious people through the wilderness. Not exactly the sort of thing a weak willed individual uh, would do. Certainly no evidence of shyness or weakness on the part of Moses. More telling is in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29. It's Jesus Christ who describes himself as meek. He says, I am meek and lowly of heart. But obviously Jesus was not afraid to confront the Pharisees. He didn't hesitate to drive the money changers out of the temple. So when we're thinking about this word meekness, this is someone who is strong, someone capable Someone who can crush you like a grape if they wanted to, but they're not going to because uh, they're going to control their strength. That's uh, that's the implication of it. Now, that begs the next question. OK, if that's what the meek are, given uh, the meaning of the original word, how is it the meek act? Matthew, chapter five and verse five is a direct quote of Psalm 37 and verse 11. So if you turn back to Psalm 37, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning in this text that is really a commentary on who are the meek and what exactly do the meek do. Psalm 37, it's really the entire chapter. But verse 11 is exactly what Jesus quotes. The Old Testament was originally, or not originally, it was at one point written in Greek, uh, the Greek Septuagint. And so the language there is identical to the language that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. So in Psalm 37, 11, we read this. The meek will inherit the earth and enjoy great peace. Now, just a comment on the end of this, because this is critical to our understanding of meekness. Uh, the word that is translated peace is the Hebrew word shalom. If you know any Hebrew at all, or if you've heard anybody ever say Hebrew, you've probably heard the word shalom. It's a normal Hebrew greeting. Uh, when you say shalom to someone, when you see them, uh, what you mean by that is you're you're suggesting to them that you want them to be at peace. Uh, you want them to be safe. 
You want them to be healthy. The New American Standard Version even translates this as prosperous. Uh, The idea with this word shalom is uh, you're going to be in a place where you are at rest, which is a foundational Old Testament, New Testament concept. Uh, if you've got a land, but you don't have rest in the land, what good is the land? And so in the book of Joshua, uh, you remember that we saw Joshua develops a rest doctrine uh, that is picked up by the author of Hebrews. Uh, uh, if the people in Joshua's day had entered into rest, there wouldn't be a rest for you Christians to enter into. But there's a rest for you. What good is land if you don't have rest in it, if you don't have peace in it? That's a critical concept uh, to the Old Testament and also to our understanding of this uh, a beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I, I might add as a footnote, as we just quick look uh, quickly by way of overview of Psalm 37, Psalm 37, 9 and 11 and 22 and 29 and 34 all have the phrase, they will inherit the earth. There are 21 commands in Psalm 37. So as you look at Psalm 37, it's all about the meek inheriting the earth. And we're giving 21 marching orders. Do these things and then you get to inherit the earth. Do these things and you're acting like someone who is meek. So then we can say, well, what are the things we're supposed to do? How do the meek uh, act? I've categorized this under two general headings. Uh, The first heading is the meek control their temper. We're back to the white stallion uh, uh, picture uh, again. In verse one of Psalm 37, we read this. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. That's repeated in verse seven. Uh, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their schemes. And verse eight, refrain from anger and turn away from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. I I generally avoid doing too terribly much and commenting on the specifics of the Hebrew text. But this is one time where I I I just can't avoid it. Uh, The word that is translated fret literally means to become hot. And given the force of the Hebrew verb that appears here, what this literally is saying is don't cause yourself to become hot. Now, it says it three times in Psalm 37. Now, there are a number of implications from that. Uh, From God's perspective, when I'm driving on 494 or 694 and some clown cuts me off and makes me mad. I've got to tell myself, you know what? They can't make me mad. The only one that can make me mad is me. I have to choose to let these clowns make me mad because I am the one that causes myself to fret. So we're going to see throughout this psalm, cut it out. Stop doing it. You're not a victim Unless you're a victim of yourself. So begin by letting yourself know I can be meek. Uh, My wife, my husband, my kids, the idiots on the road. And you can tell this is a problem for me. The idiots on the road here in the Twin Cities, they can't make me mad. So I'm not going to let them do it. Fret not. Um, Continuing in verse one. Don't be envious of those who do wrong is another uh, command. What is it that's likely to make me angry? Well, I look at the people around me and it seems like they're a different set of rules. I got my set of rules and they got their set of rules and I'd rather have their set of rules. And so I'm envious of their rules and envious of the way they get treated and envious of the way other people treat them. And that makes me mad. And here the psalmist is saying, you want to be meek? You can't go comparing yourself to the people around you. Verse eight, even more specific here. Here. 
Refrain from anger and turn away from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads uh, to evil. Now, that verse doesn't need a lot of explaining. Uh, once we recognize that we're the only ones that can really make ourselves mad. And if we're going to be uh, the meek that Jesus calls us to be, we've got to get that principle down. But I, I think we can picture the situation. There was a young uh, father in a supermarket pushing a shopping cart. Uh, and his uh, young son was being a little monster. He was taking cans out of the cart and throwing them on the on the floor, taking cans off the shelf and then throwing them everywhere. He was whining. He was crying. He was fussing. I mean, he was really being a little imp. And as the uh, father was going through the supermarket, he seemed calm as he continued on each uh, down each aisle. He murmured, easy now, Donald. Keep calm, Donald. Steady, boy. It's all right, Donald. Now, most of the people in the supermarket were given a wide path because, you know, the kid was just really acting out. And there was a mother who saw this scene and she was impressed by what the father was doing. And she said to him, you certainly know how to talk to an upset child quietly and gently. And then bending down a little boy, she said, what seems to be the trouble, Donald? Oh, no, the father said, he's Henry. I'm Donald. Throughout this passage, Psalm 37, it indicates if we want to be the meek, uh, we've got to make a decision that we're going to control our own temper and attitude. I mentioned I, I divided these commands into two categories. The second uh, category is, is centered around the, world, uh, the word trust. Uh, the, uh, the word trust is used regularly. We see it in verse 3. This might be a verse some of you have memorized. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and enjoy safe pasture. Uh, several instructions here about our relationship with God and how that's going to help us uh, be meek. Trust in the Lord and do good. I, I came across this illustration from the life of uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower this last week. Um, he uh, said that oftentimes he wished that he could consult his mother when he was in the office of uh, president, but he couldn't because she was in heaven. But he'd remember what she said, like the time that they were playing cards. And as Eisenhower said, not, not with that deck that has aces and kings and queens and all spades and that sort of thing. His mother didn't like that deck. She was too straight laced for that. They, they played with another deck and they played the game Flinch. I never even heard of this game. Does anybody know the game Flinch? You know, you know the game? So all the straight laced people are identifying themselves with the <laughs> nod of their head. Uh, and he goes on and says, um, mother was the dealer and she dealt me a very bad hand. I began to complain. Mother said, boys, put your cards down. I want to say something, particularly to Dwight. You're in a game in your home with your mother and brothers who love you. But out in the world, you'll be dealt bad hands without love. Here's some advice for you, boys. Take those bad hands without complaining and play them out. Ask God to help you and you will win the important game called life. And Dwight D. Eisenhower said as president, he tried to follow uh, that uh, teaching, which is a uh, expression of this phrase. Uh, Trust in the Lord and do good. Verse three, dwell in the land. A number of years ago, there was that book, Jonathan Livingston, Jonathan, Jonathan Livingston, Seagull. The basic story in the book was uh, uh, there was this guy who was struggling with people who were making him mad and upset. He'd like to be like a seagull and just fly away. There are times for you when you feel that way. If I could just get out of here, maybe go fishing, be on a cold lake someplace and freeze myself. That'd be kind of cool. 
Here, uh, the psalmist is telling us, no, no, what you need to do is to dwell in a land. There is no escaping. So stay in there. Keep trusting God. Verse three, uh, the latter part of, of the text here, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Literally, in the Hebrew text, it says cultivate faithfulness. Uh, and it's uh, suggesting that as we are pastoring, we have a choice of what we eat. Like the old uh, Chinese proverb where our grandfather was talking to his grandson and, and he said, son, there are two wolves uh, that live inside of me. And I'm always fighting these two wolves. And the grandson said, well, grandfather, which wolf wins? And grandfather said, well, it's the wolf that I feed. So in this text, feed on the faithfulness of God, trust in the Lord and do good. That's the only way ultimately to deal with the evildoers who are in the land. Verse four, delight yourself. Uh, the uh, phrase delight yourself, again, is one of these causative reflexives. Cause yourself to be soft, be delicate, be dainty uh, is the uh, force of the word. Now, uh, thinking of it that way, I'm going to give you an illustration that doesn't seem to fit. Uh, illustration that comes from some professional football players. But I think they've captured uh, the significance of uh, what's happening here. Uh, Norm Evans was an all-pro tackle for the Miami Dolphins for several, for several years. And he once said, it's really dangerous for a pro, pro football player to get angry. In fact, that's when linemen sustain their most serious injuries. Anger is so harmful in football, if I can get an opposing lineman or end angry at me, he'll concentrate on beating me and forget to attack the quarterback. And that's my job, protecting the quarterback. Or Mike Fuller, who was a fleet-footed safety uh, for the San Diego Chargers in the 1970s. He said, the wide receivers are continually trying to make us angry each time they come into their, our area. Because they know if they can upset us emotionally, they can fool us on the next play. So even a rough, rugged football player needs to uh, recognize that he's got to be soft and delicate if he's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Verse 5 Commit your way to the Lord, and uh, it, uh, it says in the text, trust in him and he will do this. The commit your way to the Lord is a picture of rolling stones. We can roll our stones a variety of directions. All these burdens that we have. Implication of the text is roll your stones to the Lord. That's what you need to do. Uh, verse seven, another uh, command given to us. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently uh, for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways. Now, it seems to me that uh, now the psalmist is reminding us of a truth we see in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, it's the Apostle Paul who says, Do not let any unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that meets the need of the moment that gives grace to the hearer. And, of course, before that, uh, he uh, challenges us, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. When do we give the devil an opportunity? When we talk, when we're mad. So how can you apply the teaching in Ephesians chapter four? There are occasions when you have to say, I can't talk now. I just can't talk now. Time out. I can't talk. Because if I talk, something's going to come out of my mouth uh, that isn't going to be edifying, that isn't going to give grace, that is going to make matters worse. So the best thing for me to do right now is to keep silent. And the psalmist is acknowledging that as well. And then he finally says, wait, I'm. Again, verse seven, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
The word that is translated wait is usually used of waiting like an expectant mother. So I thought uh, this Mother's Day, it might be good for us to remind ourselves what mothers are like as we think about this word waiting. Somebody said it takes about six weeks to get back to normal after you've had a baby. Somebody doesn't know that once you're a mother, normal is history. Somebody said you learn about how to be a mother by instinct. Somebody never took a three-year-old shopping. Somebody said being a mother is boring. Somebody never rode in a car driven by a teenager with a driver's permit. Somebody said good mothers never raise their voices. Somebody never came out the back door just in time to see her child hit a golf ball through the neighbor's kitchen window. The reason I'm laughing, I did that. In fact, it was my parents' brand new car that I hit with my golf ball. Broke the windshield of their new car, so... I guess that shouldn't be funny, should it? It's, uh, I should be sad about that. Somebody said you don't need an education to be a mother. Somebody never helped a fourth grader with his math. Somebody said you could love the fifth child, or somebody said you could not love the fifth child as much as you love the first. Somebody doesn't have five children. Somebody said a mother could find all the answers to her child-rearing questions in books. Somebody never had a child stuff beans up his nose or in his ears. Somebody said the hardest part of being a mother is labor and delivery. Somebody never watched her baby get on the bus for the first day of kindergarten or on a plane headed for military boot camp. Somebody said a mother could do her job with her eyes closed and one hand behind her back. Somebody never organized seven giggling brownies to sell cookies. Somebody said a mother can stop worrying after her child gets married. Somebody doesn't know that marriage adds a new son or daughter-in-law to a mother's heartstrings. Somebody said a mother's job is done when their last child leaves home. Somebody's never had grandchildren. Somebody says your mother knows you love her, so you don't need to tell her. Somebody's not a mother. Uh, We look at this passage of Scripture. If you're not getting the tone of Psalm 37 and what it means to be meek yet, throughout this passage, this passage is declaring to us that what should matter most is relationships, not real estate. Uh, What we should care about most is is uh, not how big our house is or how new our car is, but whether we have peace and rest with whatever else we have in the relationships that matter. Now, that becomes very evident as we look at my third question. Now, the third question is, what really is it that the meek inherit? Uh, As we look at the text before us, verse 4, these are now promises. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Is that true? Verse 6. He'll make your righteousness shine like dawn and the justice of your cause like the new day sun. So there's going to be evidence of growth. We talked about verse 11. Uh, The meek will inherit the land and enjoy great shalom, peace, well-being, rest uh, in relationships. Verse 27. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. There's going to be constant abiding that we'll enjoy. One uh, summer evening during a violent thunderstorm, my mother was taking her small boy in bed. She was about to turn off the light when he asked with a tremor in his voice, Mommy, will you sleep with me tonight? The mother smiled, gave him a reassuring hug and said, I can't, dear. I have to sleep with your daddy. The long silence was broken at last by a shaky little voice. The big sissy. (laughs) 
throughout this passage of Scripture, God is saying, trust in me. Feed on my faithfulness. Roll your stone burdens to me. And I'll give you peace. I'll give you rest. I'm not going to leave you. By contrast, what's promised the wicked in this passage? In verse 10, uh, there'll be no more. Verses 15 and 17, uh, the wicked will self-destruct. All we have to do is look around us and see how true that is. Uh, James Garbanino, human development professor at Cornell University, reports a major social shift in America. Uh, He writes, there's a general breakdown of social conventions, of manners, of social controls. This gives a validation, a permission to be aggressive. Kids used to be guided by social convention that said, keep the lid on. Today, they're guided more in the direction of taking it off. Garbarino also observes an uh, increasing cultural vulgarity, as he calls it. Swear words are now common on cable TV, and violence is promoted in much of today's youth music. Psychologist Frank Farley of Temple University cites a loosening of inhibitions promoted by TV talk shows such as Jerry Springer's, where it's okay to say what's ever on your mind. Do that and you'll self-destruct. Verse 20, uh, we're reminded that the wicked uh, will perish. Bishop Edwin Hughes was once delivering a stirring message on the title, God Owns Everything. And there was a rich parishioner in his uh, parish that was kind of bent out of shape uh, by that. After the service, he got together with a good bishop uh, to show him his estate, took him to his estate, showed him all that he owned. And after the uh, tour, he said, now you're going to tell me that all this land doesn't belong to me? To which the bishop said, ask me that same question in a hundred years. The wicked perish. Verses 22, 28, and 38 remind us the wicked will be cut off. So fret not because of evildoers. Adolf Hitler, following Napoleon, who followed a lot of men before him, believed that God was on the side of the biggest cannons. Therefore, he was convinced if he could assemble a Nazi juggernaut, he could sweep across Europe and he could conquer the world and make the Germans the master race. But Hitler ran into God in the form of a Russian winner and a Russian army. And ultimately, Hitler, for all of his promise, was defeated. Now, you look at the uh, biblical history and you see there was a time when it appeared like the Assyrians were going to rule the world forever. But the Assyrians fell to the Medo-Persians. And then the Medo-Persians fell to the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians fell to the Romans. And then the Romans fell, of all people, to barbarians. And what we see uh, in terms of military prowess is that those who believe that you inherit the world by military might or by aggression, every single nation that does that falls eventually. Now, if you judge them by the day, you might think, well, it's the powerful that inherit the earth. But if you judge them by the years, you see it's not true. Uh, Also in nature, scientists tell us uh, that one of the fundamental principles in science is survival of the fittest. Now, that would suggest that it's aggressive. Uh, It's the powerful that should survive. But if you look at nature, uh, given that principle, you'd be betting on on, uh, eagles uh, to be outnumbering sparrows. But if you look at nature, what's true? Eagles are on the endangered list, and there are lots and lots of sparrows. 
Uh, if you believe the principle that it is the aggressive that the powerful is going to inherit the earth, you'd be betting on lions and tigers, the king of the beasts, over against lambs. But there's lots and lots of lambs. And lions and tigers are on the endangered list. Uh, what's true in um, military forces, what's true in nature, is also true in relationships. I can't imagine uh, there's any of us here this morning who is saying, you know, I want to have a friend, and what I'm looking for in a friend is a jerk. You know, somebody who's arrogant, somebody who's aggressive, somebody who's going to be mean, somebody who's going to be pushy. No, we want the meek as our friends. We may notice the aggressive as they go to the restaurants and they are demanding the seat by the window, and they may even get it. But what this passage of Scripture is telling us, they may have that seat by the window, but they're not going to enjoy their meal because they got ulcers. they got anger. They don't have peace. They don't have rest. Let me show you the moral of Psalm 37. It's verse 16. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. You ready to buy that as a truth of Scripture today? If you have just a little bit of real estate, but you got Jesus, you're a lot better off than people who've got lots and lots of real estate and they don't have rest, they don't have a relationship with Jesus. That's what Jesus Christ uh, is talking about uh, in, his, uh, uh, in his beatitude, blessed are the meek. The meek have a heritage. They will receive land. Verses 9, 11, 22, 29, 34. Verse 37 says they will have a posterity, that is, relationships is what they're going to have. Uh, it's all about uh, having the kind of relationships with people who are uh, going to encourage us, people who are going to support us, people who are uh, going to uh, contribute to our rest as we contribute to theirs. And a lot of that one more Mother's Day illustration and we're done. This was a uh, uh, husband. I don't have his uh, his name. Um, but uh, he said, after 21 years of marriage, my wife wanted me to take another woman out to dinner in a movie. She said, I love you, but I know the other woman loves you and would love to spend some time with you. The other woman that my wife wanted me to visit was my mother, who had been a widow for 19 years. But the demands of my work and my three children made it, uh, made it possible to visit her only occasionally. That night I called to invite her to go out to dinner in a movie. What's wrong? Are you well? She asked. My mother's the type of woman who suspects that late night calls or surprise invitations is a sign of bad news. I thought it would be pleasant to spend some time with you, I responded, just the two of us. She thought for a moment about it, and she said, I'd like that very much. That Friday after work, as I drove her to pick her up, I felt a bit nervous. When I arrived at her house, I noticed, too, that she seemed a bit nervous about our date. She waited in the door with her coat on. She had curled her hair and was wearing the dress she had worn to celebrate her last wedding anniversary. She smiled from a face that was radiant as an angel's. I told my friends I was going out with my son, and they were impressed, she said, as she got in the car. They can't wait to hear about our meeting. We went to a restaurant that, although not elegant, was very nice and cozy. My mother took my arm as if she were the first lady. After we sat down, I had to read the menu. Her eyes could only read large print. Halfway through the entrees, I lifted my eyes and saw Mom sitting there staring at me. A nostalgic smile was on her lips. It was I who used to have to read the menu when you were small, she said. Then it's time you relax and let me return the favor, I responded. During the dinner, we had an agreeable conversation, nothing extraordinary, but catching up on recent events in each other's lives. We talked so much that we missed the movie. 
As we arrived at her house later, she said, I'll go out with you again, but only if you'll let me invite you. I agreed. How was your dinner date? My wife asked when I got home. Very nice. Much more than I could have imagined, I answered. A few days later, my mother died of a massive heart attack. It happened so suddenly that I didn't have a chance to do anything for her. Sometime later, I received an envelope with a copy of a restaurant receipt from the same place where my mother and I had dined. An attached note said, I paid this bill in advance. I wasn't sure I could be there, but I paid for two plates, one for you and the other for your wife. You'll never know what that night meant to me. I love you, son. At that moment, I understood the importance of saying in time, I love you, and to give our loved ones the time that they deserve.